Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson. Welcome to a very special Open Championship episode of the Jake's Takes podcast, brought to you straight from Portrush, Ireland. What a fantastic finish we had at the Open Championship at Royal Portrush, and it was only fitting that we had an Irishman win this Open Championship brought back to Portrush. We haven't been in Ireland, I think, 58 years for the Open Championship. I think it was back in 1951 when Max Faulkner won here at Portrush. So it was a wonderful storybook finish for the Irishman, Shane Lowry. Coming in, everybody was expecting hometown heroes Graham McDowell, Darren Clark, and Rory McElroy to be holding the uh, claret jug at the end of the week. But it, it turned out to be Shane Lowry, who I've... I've been a big fan of Shane's for years. I think he's an excellent player. He's got a great swing. Everybody hits the ball well these days, but what he has is that fire. He's got that determination, and we see it a few times on the golf course in the States when Shane will hit a bad shot, and he will let a few four-letter words fly. I don't mind that. I think that shows commitment to what commitment to your craft and a, an explosiveness that is needed sometimes in the world of championship golf. We, uh, being here at Royal Portrush, had us, our whole family was over. We had a chance to reconnect with our very good friends, the McCrudden family, who we met in 2004 when I was over for the Senior Open Championship. And I'm so happy to be joined by my good friend, Gary McCrudden. Gary, welcome Welcome to Jake Stakes, your first time on the show. Thank you, Peter. It certainly is. It may be my last once you heard this. But well, no, it might not be your last, but I don't know how the next time we'll be in Ireland. You're going to have to come visit us in the States. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit. Well, first of all, let's go back to 04 when you and I met. We got paired in the Senior Open Championship Pro-Am. That's right. And it was a pleasure, and we've we've kind of stayed connected over the past yeah. 15 years. Yes, uh, indeed we have. That uh, No, I that was the first time we met, and uh, if you recall, you had uh, Mike Cowan, or Fluff, as a lot of people would know him, uh, caddying for you, and uh, I, I think he had, he had come over just on that trip to caddy for you, and uh, what a nice guy he was, and uh, we played with uh, I was on the council at Royal Port Rush back then, and we played with the then captain Roy Dunbar, and the immediate past captain Ian Henderson. And uh, sadly, neither of whom are any longer with us. But uh, but we're here. But we're still upright. Yeah. And we're uh, and we're having fun here at this uh, at this open this year. Absolutely right. People have been looking forward to it for a very long time, and uh, we're uh, so glad that. It came, and uh, I think it went extremely well. Everybody thinks it's been very successful. What goes into an open championship doing something? It has to be Herculean to be able to attract the open championship to your home club, and in this case, all the way to Northern Ireland, where we haven't been, as I said, in 58 years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been a very long time, as you said, Peter. It's been 51 years since uh, Max Faulkner won it here. And uh, I, th- I think, um, you know, the club has always been hopeful that the Open would come back here. But um, 
I mean, I, I'm not involved with the council now, but I was uh, very much involved with the council whenever uh, the decision was made that we would uh, try and secure the open here. And as the RNA would say, it was always on on their radar, but I think the there were two major factors in it, and I don't use the word major lightly. Uh, Padraig Harrington winning two successive Open Championships uh, and the PGA Championship, and then uh, Graham McDowell, or McDowell as you would call him, uh, Graham winning the US Open at Pebble in 2010, and uh, then uh, Rory, uh, of course, becoming a major champion winning the US Open in 2011 and the Open Championship in 2014 and two other majors, of course, as well. The other, the added factor was that we hosted the Irish Open for the first time in 60 years uh, in Northern Ireland. And uh, I think when the RNA saw that how successful it was and how the club and the course could cope with that, uh, that was a major factor in bringing them back. Uh, now, we know of David Faraday, one yeah. of Northern Ireland's favorite sons. Now, we know him. He's a, he's a, he's a crazy fellow, the crazy Irishman, who I work with at NBC Sports. And a joke, I love David. He's, he's a wonderful human being. But what is it about the water up here that gives us such great champions like Graham McDowell and Darren Clark and Rory McIlroy in this tiny part of the world well i think it's the water that goes into the guinness and uh you know i think all those guys i'm not so sure about rory but i know uh i know graham and especially darren uh like a pint of guinness so uh i think that has helped but it's amazing for a small country uh like ireland and northern ireland in particular for Northern Ireland, of two modern-day major champions, uh, because the only previous one was Fred Daly, who won at Hoylake or Royal Liverpool in 1947. And now uh, we have uh, Podrig uh, and now Shane Lowry today. <laughs> it's magnificent. Explain to me, I-, I was schooled by one of the locals here in downtown Portrush. He stopped me on the streets and he said, now you say in the States... McDowell. And he said, that's wrong. We don't say it McDowell over here. We say it McDowell. That's right. That's quite right. Uh, everybody here would know him as Graham McDowell. And he would be, it would be pronounced McDowell in Northern Ireland. Uh, but the commentators started calling him McDowell. He was announced at tournaments as Graham McDowell. And Graham just went with it, I think. Uh, he wasn't going to start correcting people. So he's, he was happy enough to be called Graham McDowell. It's, uh, I suppose, it's a bit like the old adage, all publicity is good publicity, as long as you spell your name right. We have, we have some, some interesting, interesting characters that we see win in the world of golf, but I can't th- think of three more fun guys and more welcoming people than McDowell, Clark, Padraig also, and Rory. Yeah. What, what they do for the world of golf, the way they treat people, is, is very special. Unlike a lot of the champions we see, they care about people. And I feel that, and I know you do, because you, you've known these lads growing up. Well, uh, we, we have known, uh, I mean, we have three sons, and our youngest son 
uh, and Rory, there's only about a couple of weeks age difference between them, and uh, they used to they would have played together in boys tournaments here, and uh, you know, but Rory's always been a really nice young man since we knew him when he was in his early teens, uh, a great guy, and obviously everybody knew he was a great talent for the future. We've known Graham for a lot of years now, and uh, Graham is such a nice guy, and uh, he he has done a lot to put Portrush uh, on the map. And Graham, uh, unlike Rory, Graham's a hometown boy. I mean, he's Portrush, born and bred, and uh, his brother Gary works in the Green Staff for about the last twenty years at Royal Portrush. So I need to ask you, because we're the same age, we're both 65, and we both love the game of golf. And as you sit here clean-shaven, as I am, <laughs> drinking a beer, I might add, not a, not a Guinness. We're going to talk about the proper pour of a Guinness in a minute, but we seem to be in the hairy generation of golfers. Watching the final round today, we've got our champion golfer of the year, right. Shane Lowry, who has a big burly beard, his caddy, has a little grayer beard. Mm-hmm playing with Tommy Fleetwood, the great Englishman, the great English talent, who's got not only the, 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 the floppy, kind of a mullet look, uh, with the scruggly, scraggly face. Can you explain that to me? Why are we in this uh, hairy era of golf? I don't know. Maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they can't be bothered getting shaved. <laughs> that, uh, what, Peter, you and I are old school, you know. We, when we get up in the morning, we like to scrape our faces. <laughs> But these guys don't seem to bother with that too much. Although they do seem to take a lot of time trimming the facial hair into shape, you know. But uh, mind you, it doesn't seem to affect their golf. It's funny. I, obviously, I'm kidding about this. But back in the day when I would play a lot with Arnold Palmer, he used to go up to the players that had facial hair and he would grab them on the cheek and he would tug on that beard and he'd say, what is this? Shave that off. And just about everybody would because if Arnold Palmer tells you to do something, you do it. But you're right. I I see the same thing. The first player that I ever saw do that was Frank Nobolo. He had that two or three day beard and it looked good because it was different. But there's nothing so different anymore about these big burly beards everybody's got them so that's to me i would think that you'd want to be a little different and you might shave but the grooming i don't know i i i've never been much of a groomer but i see a lot of these young lads spending time grooming correct (laughs) so so just to quickly tell me a little bit we just came from the harbor bar that's right the famous harbor bar here at uh, downtown port rush can you tell me about how to pour a proper Guinness? Because I have no clue. Well, I want to make it clear I am not a trained barman, but I have drunk many pints of Guinness over my career. <laughs> and uh, the, the correct way to do it is you pull the pint, but you only take it about halfway, and then you let, let it settle, or you take it a little bit above halfway, and then you have to let the pint settle a little, and then you top it up. And uh, it's important to let the whole Guinness settle. You'll notice when it's poured, it's still cloudy near the top. You let it settle so that it's completely black before you drink it. 
wish we had video on this podcast so we could watch this. Is it true there's two things you heard about drinking a lot of Guinness? That it will give you, uh, first of all, give you a speech impediment. You sound you sound odd when you have way too many beers. At least that's been my experience. But is it true that you also can do a better Irish accent? Because your Irish accent is spot on, I must say. Yes, I, I've had many years of practice uh, drinking Guinness and speaking with an Irish accent. <laughs> 65 of them to be precise, Peter. Coming up in this edition of Jake's Takes, we have a chance to sit down with my good friend and former caddy, Mike Cowan. You all know him as Fluff. Started with me on tour, went to caddy for Tiger Woods. Now is caddying for Jim Furyk, and they are going strong. The first pub we could stagger to was 12 steps from the plane. A virgin flight to Shannon Town the day it didn't rain. The laughing eyes of Ireland, sparkling blue and green. With hair as black as Guinness Stout and barely 17 We're back out on the cobblestones, whiskey drunk and high again Liquored up and giving up for seven nights in Ireland Big congratulations go out to my fellow Cleveland and Strixon staff member Shane Lowry for his inspiring win at the Open Championship this week. He plays the Strixon Z-Star XV Golf Ball. It's a little harder compression than the one I play. But the one thing that happens whenever you play in crazy conditions like we get at the Open Championship, and back in the days when I played in the Open, the big X factor all week is how is your golf ball going to be impacted by the inclement conditions? And believe me, this week at Royal Port Rush, we had just about everything that the, uh, the, the weather gods could throw at you. And especially on Sunday, we had winds and gusts of 30 to 35 miles an hour. We had spitting rain. And when you get the winds like we had at Royal Port Rush the final day, it's so unpredictable. But the way that Shane hit the golf ball, the way that he controlled it, he could put the ball down under the wind. He could throw it up into the wind. And the crosswinds didn't impact his ball because he, the ball is so maneuverable. So I just want to point out to everybody that this Srixon Z-Star ball, whether it's the Z-Star or the Z-Star XV, it is a great ball, the best ball I've ever played because you can hit just about any kind of shot with it. So Shane, congratulations. Well done, lad. The corner bit is waiting for the session to begin. It's quiet as a mother's prayer till we all stumble in. And it's 50 happy voices mixed with whistles made of tin. And a piper man is blowing like the North Atlantic wind. And Erin Island Beauty is sawing on the violin. I wonder will she miss me after seven nights in Ireland. Happy to be joined by Mike Cowan. Everybody knows him as Fluff. Caddy on tour for Jim Furyk. Now, Mike, you and I go back to 1977 when you and I hooked up together. Well, 78, actually. But 77, I worked for you at San Antonio. It's so long ago, I don't even think we had automobiles back then, did we? Oh, no. No, there were no no rental cars. You got around any way you could get around. There were no Lexus cars then. I don't even, I think I drove everywhere I went. You did. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't even. I never flew at the beginning of my caddying career. I, I just whatever the mileage was to get where I was going. That's what I did. And you, you traveled with your dog, 
I had a dog at Seamus. Chevis, yeah. Chevis, sorry. Yeah. And and you lived in your car literally until the winter time. Well, when... no, I'd 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 uh, I'd uh, you know room with four or five caddies in the right? hotel room. <laughs> in fact, in, is it rumor true that you used to try to get arrested around November just so you could spend the next three or four months with, inside with three squares? No, that's a lie. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. But just check in my facts here in my bio book. But 1978 was the beginning of our player caddy relationship. Actually, the first the first tournament that that I worked for you, you were first alternate at Habitown Hilton Head, and we didn't get in. So my first week with you was quite easy. Got paid, did nothing. Got paid and did nothing. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what you've been doing your whole life, isn't it? Pretty much. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you can call, if you can call a caddy and work. I don't agree with you. It beats the heck out of working. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm kidding, but you worked with we worked together for better part of 20 years, and then you went to work for Tiger Woods when he first came out on tour, and you had quite a run. It was a short run. Short run. Year and a half. But hottest, well, hottest decision at that time. It was the hottest decision I ever made in my life, but I kind of felt like it was something I had to do, so I did, and it was it was a great time working for Tiger. A lot of success, a lot of fun. Saw a lot of different parts of the world that I'd never seen before. It didn't last as long as I probably would have liked it to, but that's the way it goes. The one thing that people always say to me is when you went to work for Tiger, the rumor was out that I was so upset that you left, you quit me to go to work for Tiger. Nothing could be further from the truth. You came to me, you said, Peter, Tiger's offered me the job. Because I had actually taken the fall of 96 off to be with my kids, t-ball, soccer games, basketball. And you went to work for Tiger on an interim basis. Yes, but it, then Tiger offered you the job and you called me. And, and I said, Jan and I both said, Mike, you have a chance to go to work for what could be at the time the potential of being one of the greatest players in the history of the game. And I would never deny anybody that chance. And we were so happy that you had that opportunity. Yeah, it, it was a great opportunity. And like I said, you know, it was a very high decision. But I can go back to, to 1995. We were paired with Tyga and Ernie Els at the St. Andrews Open. That was our pairing for the first two days at that, at that Open. And I remember distinctly you telling me, look at this. These two guys are the future of golf. And they, they kind of fulfilled that prophecy, that, and look what they've done. Yeah, and I think I added on to that, look at us three walking down the first fairway at St. Andrews. How the heck did us old guys get in this pairing? Yeah, it was pretty wild that that was our pairing that year. But I do remember one specific about that tournament. Ernie was leading after two days, and Ernie was, I don't know, 24 or 5 at the time. Yeah. He was a youngster. Yeah. Tiger was an amateur. Yeah. And and Tiger had made the cut. Well, all three of us made the cut. And Tiger came up to me on the range. And he was a high ball hitter back then. And he came up to me and he said, Peter, could I ask you a question? Is there anything about my game that you see that you would advise me to work on? And I was dumbfounded because nobody has ever, in the history of the tour, I don't think, gone up to another competitor on the range during a tournament and asked a question like that. You're going to get counsel later on from the greats like Jack and Arnold and Gary Player and Torino. But Ernie came up to me later and said to me, Tiger came up to him and asked him the same question, which impressed me beyond words simply because 
Here's a kid who is already a world beater. He's already won six USGA championships in a row, three juniors mm. and three amateurs. Mm-hmm. And here he is asking the advice of other players, fellow competitors, about how he can improve his game. And I, I think that just showed everybody, showed me that this kid was serious about his career. Oh, he, Tiger was, was eager to learn. I'll, I'll say that. My, when, my first year, or my first being around him as a working relationship, he was eager to learn everything he could from, from people that he believed could help him. And it doesn't surprise me that he would ask you something like that. So you start with me, which I would say I would be single A ball. You jump up to Tiger Woods, who would be like a major league uh, MVP. And then you slide over to Jim Furyk, who maybe isn't quite the level of Tiger Woods, but Jim Furyk has the respect of everybody in the game. I believe he will be a Hall of Fame inductee in the next few years. Yes, I would agree with that. But yeah. you, together you've won the U.S. Open. Uh-huh. And you've won, I don't know, a countless number of tournaments. You've shot a 59 together and a 58. Mm-hmm. He's the only player that, that has those two scores. I mean, there's other guys, I think maybe five or six other guys that have shot 59, but there isn't anybody else that shot 58 at this point. Man, an incredible day. That was done at Hartford, which has always been one of my favorite spots. Me too. And... They actually, Tiger and Jim, actually have the same mental approach, same competitive motivation to succeed at the level that we're all at here. Now, yes, they go about it differently. Tiger's a bomber and Jim isn't. But their their approach to how they do it, the preparation that they both, if they weren't such great players, would be really good caddies just because of how they approach the game. Here we are over at the Open at Royal Port Rush, and I think when you talk about two players like Jim Furyk and Tiger Woods, distinctly different games the way they play. But when you start looking at winning majors like they both have, Tiger has 15, Jim has the U.S. Open title, there is a perspective that's needed to understand your game. Whether you're a bomber like a Brooks Kepka or a lot of the kids today, or a, a, someone who be, would be more strategic like a Jim Furyk. Or a Corey Pavin. Or a Corey Pavin. It's a, now that I'm doing more broadcast and playing a lot less, I see the difference. I see the lines that a bomber takes off a tee versus a, somebody who's a shorter hitter. Someone like a Zach Johnson, mm-hmm. who is a, is a prolific winner, mm-hmm. but he doesn't play the same game as a Tiger Woods. No, no. Well, the, the year the year that Zach won Augusta, he he never went for thirteen or fifteen. Never never had a go at the par fives. Laid up, and I don't know how you know. I don't know how he played the holes now, but I know that he never had a go at either one of those two holes. Which you know, the, the vast majority of the field is having a go at those two par fives in two. So yeah, Zach's a very strategic kind of player. Who's won? Two majors. I believe it's two, Augusta and the Open. He and, he and Jim play the same sort of game. So let me ask you the debate about the golf ball. You know how Nicholas feels. Yeah. He thinks the golf ball goes too far. Uh-huh. I happen to agree with him because when I'm doing broadcasts for NBC or Golf Channel, there's no such thing as a par five anymore for these young kids. If you're under the age of 30, you don't know what a par five is. You're hitting them all in two. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the answer is? Should they do something about the ball or just eliminate a par five altogether, make them all par fours and par threes? 
Well, that's a heck of a question. Uh, I don't know is there truly a need to do that. I think I don't think the ball needs to change. I, I think you just accept the fact that these young kids are going to make birdies on fives, on par fives, most of the time. Most of the time, actually. I'd go so far as to say that. But I think you just, you just let that be and accept it, is, is my opinion anyway. So you're, you're going back all the way to, I think it was the Open. We played at Royal St. George's, where I got off to, remember we got off to a great start. We were six or seven under through 13 or 14 holes, and then I made a 10. Yes. And we got done, and I was complaining and lamenting to you about making a, a 10 on a par 4, par 5. And there was an old Scottish dude. He walked up to me, and he said, Pierre, he said, I remember over here in, the, in, uh, in Scotland, there's no such thing as birdies, pars, or bogeys. They're just numbers. Just numbers, lad. Yeah. Said you made a 10, forget it, go get them tomorrow. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. In fact, I used that today on the air. Hell yeah. Because Rory yesterday started with an eight yes. quad and yeah. ended with a triple seven. And I brought that up. I said, there's no such thing as pars, birdies, or bogeys. Only numbers in the Open Championship. Yep. Because you're presented with all different kinds of challenges. All kinds of different challenges. I remember that, I can't remember the year. Maybe it was 95, I don't, but it was at St. Andrews on the road hole. Remember hitting it in the left rough there? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. And when it kept going in the left rough and the left rough, and I don't remember what we made. But eight, I, eight. I, I remember we were in that left rough all the way until we got up around the green because the ball just wouldn't come out of there. I was playing with Nick Price, and I was I was coming. We were coming top five. Yeah, we had a, we had a great go there. Yes, absolutely. And my ball ended in the gorse, and I kept swinging, and it kept going deeper and f- into the gorse and further left. And Nick Price was watching me. It, it's like it's like a guy standing on the street watching a burning building, and there's a guy up in the upper window. You really feel badly for the guy in the burning building, but you're really glad it ain't you. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. And I'm making eight. And I remember turning to Nick, and Nick looked at me, and I said, Nick, I think I made an eight there. And he said, yeah, you did. I said, check the card. I may have got a stroke on that hole. That <laughs> may have been an eight for a seven because I felt like it was a 30 handicapper. Uh, yeah, we, 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 didn't make, we didn't make the brightest decision there between the two of us. <laughs> no, that, it was- that first shot from the left rough should have been, instead of trying to go forward, it should have been coming out sideways. So was that the worst decision in my open history, or was it tackling the naked guy? Which would, which would it be? Making the eight. I agree. Cost both of us money. Yeah, anybody can. And not. the tackle, the tackle was pure. It you was. Know? So, you know, I, I don't, other than the fact that, that you didn't listen to me, which happened probably more than once. Par for the course. But in the end, that tackle will be remembered by everybody for a long time. I do know one thing. I lead one statistical category on the PGA Tour, probably never to be broken. I lead the tour in tackling streakers, naked men. I'm yeah. with, I have one. Everybody else is tied with zero. Absolutely. So take that, Jack. <laughs> take that, Jack. watched the ponies run. 50 pounds against the odds and came in six to one. Mick Swiggin heard the race report, he invited us on in So we drank Catholic whiskey with all unfound friends He raised a glass to all of us, and we all toast to them Here's to Michael, Tom and Pat, and seven nights in Ireland Had a wonderful week at Royal Port Rush. I had my entire family with me 
in town for the Open Championship, and I had fun talking with my nine-year-old grandson, Baz. And one aspect of nightlife over in Portrush is you could take your kids into the pubs or the bars and have them hang out with you until 9 p.m. So I've got Baz here with me, and Baz, when you went into the bars, what did you expect to see? Well, I expected to see people chugging with mugs of beer that you sometimes can see in cartoons, and I expected people slamming their drinks on the table and playing the knife game where they stab across their fingers. I also pictured people betting on their money and having fights, because when I heard the word pub, I thought of, in olden times, pubs where, like, Vikings or people would sit and do that. And now that today and stuff has changed, it's a lot different. Okay, that's an honest assessment. Yes, drunken golfers slowly drinking beer, sitting at tables alone watching the golf game. Fair enough. Well, we kissed all the girls goodbye and gathered in our gear. And when she walked me to the gate, I swear I saw it too. But then she looked into my eyes, I knew she felt my pain. And only then I realized we were standing in the rain. So sit our places at the pub, and when the eyes are dry again, we'll come back another day for seven nights in Ireland. We're over here at the Open Championship, recording this at Royal Portrush. After the second round, you and uh, the fellow you caddy for, I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah, Jim Furyk. Jim Furyk. Made four birdies on the back nine, made the cut at, you're at one under, and the cut was one over today. Yep, we uh, we had a wonderful back nine, and, uh, uh, you know, at, at a time that, that looked like we might not be here for the weekend, here we are, playing the weekend. Well, people always ask me, about the story of tackling the streaker in 1985. I was, uh, we were at Royal St. George's. Yes. Actually playing well. Yes. Second, second to last group playing with Tom Kite. Yep. And enjoyed everything about the week as we always do at the Open. But why don't you take us through what happened on that 18th green? <laughs> well, we're, we're standing there. Uh, you, you hit the green, have a birdie putt. And uh, in your preparation to, to hit that putt, I was looking up, and you were looking up, at this guy at the back of the green getting through the bobbies, uh, naked. The man was naked, just, and he was prancing around on his way to be on the green. And I'll say 20 to 30 seconds before this all took place, I said to you, just let him be. Just, just... Just let him let people take care of him that that you know can take care of him. So, but but you knew that that was a challenge to me. Well, I I could see in your eyes that you weren't about to listen to me, and and lo and behold, here he comes running right at you, and you planted him, made a picture perfect tackle, and I, I, luckily you got your head off to the side where it belongs for a good tackle. Because had you not done that, who knows what would have happened. No spearing. And, <laughs> and uh, here he comes at you, and you put him to the ground with I, an absolutely wonderful tackle. I remember Payne Stewart was on the back of the green because he, I think he hit his second. And Sandy was in the on the tee on 18. And No, he was actually in the fairway waiting to play was his he? shot. Was yeah, he? Yeah. And I remember watching this fellow who I believe was a marshal. 
I think he might have been a marshal. Yeah. Yes. And, and so I don't know many marshals in the world of golf, championship golf, that come to a tournament thinking, I'm going to take my clothes off and run around naked. But there obviously there is one guy that wanted to do that. Yes, there was. But when you said to me, just leave this nutball alone, yeah. that's a challenge to me. Yeah. And he ran right at me. And as you said, I didn't want to spear him. I didn't want to, I wanted to go low, but I was going to go low, but I had to go way low for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have my mouth shut that often, but boy, it was clamped shut on that day. <laughs> Hit him low, took him down over my shoulder. And the Bobbies, if you watch the film, the Bobbies jumped on that guy so fast. Uh huh. And well, you made it easy for him because you, you stopped him. <laughs> I stopped him, and I got out of the way really quick. But the best part of it was I jumped up. I did a sack dance. Yeah. It's on the video, and I held my fingers apart, you know, yeah. just a couple inches. <laughs> I wanted everybody to know that the guy had a tap in. That's all he had. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move on. <laughs> but do you remember when I, 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 I made bogey and... The ovation. Did? I did make bogey. Wow! I, did. I didn't I remember did. that. I thought yeah. you had a. I thought you had a birdie putt and just ended up making power, but you didn't. You made bogey. I did make bogey because it was the greatest ovation for a last hole birdie or a last hole bogey in major championship history. And in fact, the next day, as you know, every paper in the world has a picture of the Open champion kissing the claret jug on the front page. Not not, the, the, not that one. <laughs> Not this year, uh, not 1985. It was a picture of me with this guy's bare bottom on my shoulder with my head down low, my eyes but, shut. But off to the side. <laughs> off to the side. I did not want an afternoon surprise at that point. No. Me tackling this guy was a, was enough of a surprise to everybody there, including you. Including me, yeah. Because I just moments before that happened, I, I said, Jake, just let him be. Well wrong yeah you you weren't about to let him be you were about to do what you did i don't think tom kite has shook my hand ever since then <laughs> but it was a i always say to sandy lyle who went on to win i always say to sandy i apologize for stealing the front cover or the front page of all those newspapers in reality pretty much stealing his thunder <laughs> Kissed all the girls goodbye and gathered in our gear And when she walked me to the gate, I swear I saw a tear But then she looked into my eyes, I knew she felt my pain And only then I realized we were standing in the rain So sit our places at the pub and when the eyes are dry again We'll come back another day for seven nights in Ireland And I cannot wait for another seven nights in Ireland when I have a chance to return to the beautiful town of Portrush. I want to thank all my guests this week and I want to thank my good friends Reckless Kelly. You've been listening to their song which is on their album Wicked Twisted Road. The song is called Seven Nights in Ireland. We'll see you next time.